This is the West Concord Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you receive a blessing from today's message. Well, good morning, y'all. If you don't know who I am, my name is Aaron Thomas. I'm the youth pastor here. Uh, It's good to be together with you this morning. Um, I'm married to a doctor, uh, and that's really hard. It's really cool in some ways, uh, but it's really hard in different ways. Like, uh, I really love easy cheese, like the aerosol cheese that squirts out of a can. Does anybody else here love that? Yes, I'm not alone. I'm so glad. Uh, I don't know what it is. It's not cheese. Uh, I think it's made with real cheese, whatever that means. Uh, But I love it. And my wife, understanding, you know, how bodies work and how food's supposed to work, doesn't love that. She doesn't love that I love it. So she doesn't want me to eat easy easy cheese. Uh, Chicken in a biscuit crackers, chicken biscuit crackers. I love those too. I don't know why. Yes, Eddie. I don't know why they call them that. Um, I don't really want to know why they call them that, but uh, I love them. Jenna hates them. Uh, I love Oreos, uh, and those she tolerates. So she's, she's out of town this weekend. She bought me a whole box of Oreos before she left. And because I am an adult now, I have not eaten all of them yet. Uh, I have self-control. Uh, anyways. Uh, being married to a doctor is awesome and, and also hard because there are things that she wants me to avoid understandably because she, she knows they're bad for my health. And it can be hard to uh, avoid those things. I can name a bunch of foods that I'm not supposed to eat and I can focus on, on only those things. But I've noticed that if I'm only focusing on the negative, like what I'm missing out on, then I forget about the positives. Like when I eat healthier, I feel better. Maybe not in the moment while I'm, like, choking down a Brussels sprout. They're still not good. Jenna's cooked them 40 different ways. I still hate them. Uh, But I'll eat them because she's my wife and I love her. Uh, In that moment, I don't feel good about swallowing that Brussels sprout. But when I eat healthier, I I sleep better. I have more energy. I feel less sluggish. Uh, and, and wanting to eat healthy, it's easy to focus on the negative, like don't eat certain foods and you got to eat these gross things that you don't like. Uh, but focusing on that doesn't make me want to eat healthy. What makes me want to eat healthy is when Jenna cooks a meal that is healthy and also delicious, like slap somebody delicious, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, like that good, like some, some glazed salmon or salmon. I don't know what you say. It's salmon because you're wondering salmon. Uh, some glazed salmon, some broccoli, some carrots, peppers, and onions, and rice. Like, I could eat that every day of my life. It's so good. And when I eat good, healthy food, it makes me want to eat more of it. And it's not chock full of things that can kill me, like easy cheese is. Um, but I, I can't just focus on the things I need to avoid. I got, if I want to stay healthy, I've got to learn to enjoy the right things. And we've been in the book of Jude for three weeks. So we're going to finish it today. Uh, And Jude wants his readers to be spiritually healthy. He wrote to them calling out some false teaching that they needed to avoid. But he knows that for them to avoid it, for them to stay healthy, they need to focus on the right things. So uh, if you haven't already opened your Bibles to the book of Jude, I encourage you to do that now. It's next to the last book in the Bible. Uh, We're going to look at the last few verses. But as a reminder, Jude is the brother of Jesus. 
or one of Jesus' half-brothers, he wrote this letter to a group of believers who had been influenced by these leaders in their church who had kind of snuck in, crept in, and they were teaching wrong things about God. They were teaching wrong things about their faith. And those wrong things would lead to spiritual death and separation from God if they weren't stopped. So, the short letter opens up, reminding Jude reminds his readers who they are in Christ. And then he calls for them to contend for the faith. That's the theme of the, the letter of Jude, to contend for the faith. Then he spends a long time explaining the dangers of false teachers. And now today we're going to look at what he gives us as how he wants his readers to actually contend for the faith. What do we do now? Uh, this is the high point of the letter. It's been building up to this, the, these few verses. So let's read together Jude, verses 20 through 25. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. It's God's word. It's good. So uh, our main point for today, hopefully what we, we take away from this at the end, is that we fight false teaching by strengthening your faith while helping others do the same. And just like we fight bad eating habits not, not just by avoiding certain foods. We're, we're going to, sorry, we can't fight bad eating habits only by avoiding certain foods. We can't fight false teaching only by avoiding it. We have to fight it by building yourselves up in the faith. Uh, if you picked up a, a bulletin this morning, if you're a note-taking type, there's a bit of a, a short outline on there. And the first point there says build yourself up in the faith. And if you're taking notes, I encourage you to change that to build yourselves up in the faith because I, I made a mistake in typing that. Jude is talking to a group of believers about building one another up. This is a collective effort, a group effort, and we're going to talk about that more in a bit. But in many of the New Testament letters, like Jude, we see the burden of the authors, uh, the, these leaders in the early church, the burden that they felt for one another, and then the compassion that they show in, in their writing. And verse 20 starts off with, but you, dear friends... And we, last week we covered a lot of the judgment in the middle section of Jude. And following all that judgment, Jude remind them in verse 17, he calls them dear friends again. And then he, here again in verse 20, he calls them dear friends. He, he cares deeply for these people. He's not just writing to a random group of people. These are people he loves. And too often Christians get labeled as, as judgy bigots. And too often we act that way. And, and we're often worse inside the church than we are outside of it in the way we treat one another. We would do well to follow Jude's example here as he follows the example of our Savior in having compassion on others. This church did not invite these false teachers in intentionally. Jude knows that. He knows they're being deceived. And because he loves them, he's not angry at them. He's concerned about them. So he, he lays out some hard truths like we walked through earlier in the letter. But he does that out of a loving, a loving concern for them. And he says, you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, 
He's contrasting their responsibility against the, the false teachers because those false teachers' lies and poor guidance was tearing the church down. And Jude urges the readers to build themselves up in their most holy faith. And so we see that our, our, this is a, a communal endeavor, a communal act. Church is a group activity. It feels not like that sometimes. Like I'm the only one with a microphone and it feels like you're just listening to me talk. But something that really helped me was changing that mindset when I come to church and thinking about, okay, I'm not just here to receive, I'm here to serve the people around me. And sometimes that looks like standing up and singing loud along to the songs that we're singing in worship because that encourages your brothers and sisters to do the same. That looks like, uh, like having a Bible on your lap and taking notes or whatever. It looks like talking about the things that you're learning in the hallway when you leave or over lunch after you leave. It's, it's encouraging one another, praying for one another in Sunday school, participating in group discussion in those times. Church is a communal endeavor. Jude knew that and he wants his readers to know that. Um, and it's by God's design. It's always been that way, that God wanted people to relate to him with one another. God created people to worship him together. And Adam and Eve failed to do that. So God saved Noah and his family from the flood and the judgment that came there. And then God called Abraham to become a great nation. He started with this family and grew them into this massive nation that was supposed to together worship him and represent him in the world. The most holy faith that Jude refers to has always been a communal faith. In verse 3, he described it as uh, being passed down once for all. It's been handed from one believer to another through generations. We're meant to know God and to help others to know him. To know him and make him known. Keep passing it down. You believe because somebody passed it to you. And there hopefully will be others who believe because you passed it to them. When Jesus summarizes the Old Testament law, he says that we should love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind. And we should also love our neighbor as ourselves. He tells us to love God and love people. These are not two separate commands. And Jesus is summarizing the entire Old Testament law in those two things. And so our, our faith in Jesus is personal because we want, we want you individually, personally, to put your faith in Jesus. If you've not done that, we want you to do that today. But it's also communal because you are being invited into a relationship with your maker and with his people. Not just this body here at West Concord, but believers all over the world. We're, we're a part of one family. We, our faith is, is a communal thing. It's a, it's a glorious group project. Nobody likes group projects, so that's a bad analogy. But the church is, is when it's at its best, it is the best version of a group project that there is. We have a responsibility to one another to help each other grow. We need each other. Uh, months ago, Pastor Mike laid out our, our mission statement for our church, and hopefully you've heard it enough that it's starting to sink into your mind. But it's growing together in knowledge, love, and obedience to God for his glory. When you gather here with us at West Concord, our goal is for you to be growing together with these other believers in knowledge, love, and obedience to God for his glory. And we want you to be doing that continuously, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, until you meet Jesus. That, that statement didn't, Pastor Mike didn't make that up. That statement is rooted in the scriptures. Like when Peter calls us living stones in 1 Peter 2, 5, he says, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're being built, 
which means we've not already been built. It's a continual process. And we're being built into a holy priesthood, a community of priests with other believers. Believer, you are meant to always be growing with others. Always be growing with others. Jude wants to see people grow And he doesn't want them to grow beyond their faith. It's not like the gospel is baby stuff and stuff we teach in Sunday school. We need to grow beyond it and past it. He wants them to continue to grow in it. We we never outgrow the gospel of Jesus. We grow into it like, like the roots of a tree. It sustains us. And if a tree tried to move from its roots, it would die. It took my kids a really long time to learn that lesson because they would find pretty things outside and then they would violently rip them from whatever they were attached to, whether it was a flower bloom or a tree branch or whatever. And they'd be like, look, look at this pretty thing I found. And they bring it in and they're like, can we keep it? And I'm like, well, it's not like a pet. Like we can't, we can't sustain that. And they're like, just put it in water. I'm like, well, that'll work for a little bit, but then eventually it dies. It's not attached to the root anymore unless you propagate it, which I just learned that's a thing. I don't know if any of y'all do that. Y'all green thumbs, Jenna's got all kinds of jars of water with stuff stuck in them so that she can let, it'll sprout roots and then she can stick it in the ground. Anyway, no analogy is perfect. Trees, if they're detached from their roots, generally die unless you have a green thumb. Anyway, analogies fall apart when we go too far. Uh, finally, our kids understand that they have to, st- that, that growing things have to stay connected to their root. And just like a tree, a tree branch or a, a blossom can't survive without being attached to the root, Christians can't survive if they're detached from the faith. Paul in Colossians 2, 6 and 7, he says, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. This is all over the scriptures. We're all meant to be growing continuously in Jesus. The aim of our lives is to become more like him and to help others do the same. If we miss that, then we're missing the point of what it means to be a believer. And maybe you're like, well, that sounds real great, but like how, practically? We're, we're, let's get to the how. Um, as we've been in the book of Jude, I haven't really talked about how much Jude loves the number three. If you go back and read through it, this letter is really short. It's 25 verses. Just read through the number of times Jude groups things in threes, these little triads that show up all throughout the letter. It's really cool the way that he structured that. Um, and some translations make the, the triad that I'm pointing out to you now a little bit hard to see. But I think Jude gives us three ways to grow after he tells us to grow. And to make that even cooler, he includes all three members of the Trinity. So we believe that God has existed forever. There's only one God, but he exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. He's existed like that forever, before time began. So God created us because he wanted to share his love with us. He did not create us because he was lonely and he needed a friend or a pet or a pal. God created us because he wanted to share his great love with us. He's been perfectly content as Father, Son, and Spirit forever. That, That matters for us to to not mess up who we think God is. But Jude, he tells us that we need to pray in the Spirit, we need to keep ourselves in the Father's love, and we need to wait expectantly on the Son's return. So we see the Spirit, the Father, the Son, the whole Trinity is, is present in this. In verse 20, he tells us, we grow in the faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. And he's not talking about some kind of special prayer. It's not, there's not like a secret to unlock to praying in the Spirit. All prayer is praying in the Spirit. 
When, when a person, when, when you recognize your own brokenness and realize that you need you, and then you decide to submit to him as Lord, at that moment, God's Holy Spirit comes to live in you. So if you've ever heard anybody use the phrase, invite Jesus into your heart, that's a, an unfortunate phrase that, that we use to, to describe what's happening here. God coming to dwell in us, to live in us. God dwells in us. We don't become him, but our bodies house him. We become temples of God. We have access to the Father by Jesus the Son through the Holy Spirit. And prayer is talking to God. And when we think about the fact that we have access to the, the maker of all things, then prayer becomes not a burden, not a, not a have-to-do thing, but a get-to-do thing. The one whose voice is powerful enough to bring everything into existence from nothing wants to have conversations with you about your work, about your day, about your family stress, about your kids, about your parents. The one whose voice caused the nation of Israel to tremble with fear when he spoke the Ten Commandments to them at Mount Sinai. He wants to hear you talk about the things that are burdening you. The one who spoke to a storm and made it immediately quit its raging wants to hear about the anxieties of your heart. And when we think about prayer like this, it, it feels like a privilege instead of a burden. And if we don't talk to God, if we don't spend time talking to him, we're not going to have a relationship with him. It's like marriage. If a husband and wife don't talk to one another, that marriage is not healthy. It's, it's strained and starved. And there are times when you don't want to talk to each other because that person's the most annoying person that you've ever seen or heard in your entire life. Uh, marriage is a beautiful thing. It's also a hard thing because <laughs> in that relationship, like, no one else in our lives can annoy us like our spouse can, and we can't annoy anyone else like we can annoy our spouse. There's a lot of rough edges that get uh, rubbed into one another when you're, when you're married. But even when we don't want to communicate, we have to communicate. And sometimes, like, uh, as, as Mike Brooks was sharing about lament and, and the difficulties and walking through the valleys of life, some of y'all are walking through some stuff that makes you angry at the Lord. You don't want to talk to him because he's done things or allowed things that you don't understand and that just bring grief and pain and hurt, and you can't see any possible good to come from it. And in those times, it's especially important that you talk to him. He can handle you saying that to him. He's not afraid of you being angry. He may not give you an answer to why he allowed it, but we can trust that he is good. And, and if you're, for me, for me, for the longest time, my prayer life was mostly spontaneous. I would pray when I thought about it. But if we only pray when we think about it, we only ever pray when things are going bad. We're not praying in, in the normal days of life when things are steady or when things are good. So schedule time to pray. Put reminders on your phone if you have to. Like set that, if you're not already doing it, make that a part of your day, a part of your week. Use the Psalms. I've started using the Psalms on someone else's recommendation as a guide to prayer where I'll just read through the Psalm and whatever it is the Lord brings to mind while I'm reading it, I'll pray about that thing. That's not Bible study, because sometimes God brings really random things to my mind when I'm reading through a psalm. Uh, but it gives me a guide. It gives me like a track to run on. 
Because once I started praying more regularly, I made a list. And if you have a list, keep that list and keep going with it. But for me, my list got, like, boring after a while. I started praying the same things over and over again. I still have my list, but I'll pray through a psalm, and it helps me think about things differently. Different people pop into my head that I wouldn't normally pray for. Or I'm using the language of Scripture to shape my prayers in my interaction with God. I I highly recommend that you take time to do that. And then... To to continue this, pointing us back to the communal part of this, C.S. Lewis talks about how uh, you get to know more about people when you know them in community. Maybe you had a friend that you knew for a really long time and you thought you knew them really well, and then you introduced them to another friend of yours and you're hanging out, now it's the three of you, and then through them talking to one another, you learn something completely new about that person that you were not aware of at all. It's like that conversation with this other person brought that out of them. It's always been true of them, but you just didn't know it because it had never come up between you. Like John and Deborah Rawstorn moved down here from Michigan, and when I learned that they're NASCAR fans, it felt like my head exploded because in my, in my head, NASCAR is a down here thing. I know it's everywhere, but like I didn't know, and I, I don't even remember how it came up, but it was through conversation with somebody else, and I was like, I just... I was like, oh, y'all are from up north. Y'all don't care about cars, but that's dumb. That was my own ignorance. Anyway, hanging out with people in groups helps you learn new things about people. And the same thing is true of God. When you spend time with other believers, with God, when you pray with other believers and you hear them pray, it's going to affect the way you see him. You're going to see new things about him. You, you might find him more beautiful or more worthy because of the words that are coming out of your brother or sister's mouth. Like, don't, don't be afraid to pray with one another because you, too, have a perspective that is unique to your life and your experience and the way God has made you. So when you pray with your, your brothers and sisters, you are helping them see God in a, maybe in a different light, revealing more about him to them. This is, we need to pray, we need to pray together. And then Jude continues, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And in the opening of this letter, if you've read it or if you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about how Jude tells believers that they are called, they are loved, and they are kept. They are called and loved by God the Father, and they are kept for Jesus Christ. Christians are loved and kept by God, but then right here he tells us to keep ourselves And the Christian life is full of this kind of tension where you believe the gospel, you believe the good news about Jesus, and you are saved when you believe that. You are made holy, but you are not yet fully saved. You're not yet fully safe because you still live in a broken and fallen world. You're not with him fully yet. And you're not yet holy because you still live in a selfish body and you're battling with your flesh daily. You're not completely holy. You are and you aren't. It's the already and the not yet. We're already saved, but we're not yet fully experiencing our salvation because we're not with Jesus face to face. There's much tension in the life of the believer. And the tension between God's work and our work must be held on to. Because if we rely too much on God's work, we, we will find ourselves becoming lazy and apathetic where we don't pursue him and don't make time for him. And if we rely too much on our work, then we become proud or arrogant. We are loved and kept, and we need to keep ourselves in that love. And again, the question of how. What, what does that actually look like? And thankfully, Jesus tells us in John 15, verses 9 and 10, 
It says, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commands and remain in his love. So we remain in God's love by keeping his commands, and his commands are found in his word. Just like we can't grow in our faith without prayer, we can't grow in our faith without God's word. Unlike false teachers who reject authority and rely on their dreams or their desires to guide them, God's people are supposed to follow the leading of the Spirit under the authority of his word. There's a reason that we open this book and study it week after week. There's a reason that we gather around it to discuss it. There's a reason we preach it. There's a reason we pray it. There's a reason we memorize it and meditate on it because in this book are found the words of life. In it, the Son of God is revealed to us as the Savior of the world. In it, we are given a framework for understanding suffering and death. We're shown a mirror where we can see our own twisted hearts. We find instruction on how to love God and love others, which we were created for. When we sin, what we're doing is failing to love God and failing to love people in one way or another. For us to live and love as we've been created to, we need the spirit in us and we need the truths of God's word. The psalmist in Psalm 119.11 says, I've treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. And memorize scripture. I, I've mentioned this before. I, I've felt conviction because I have so many random things memorized more than scripture. And one of those things is stupid movie quotes from movies I saw like in high school. And they're still in my brain. Like, they come up at random times, and it's like, I, I can quote more dumb movies from the 90s and early 2000s than I can scripture. And, like, there's a reason why our, our brains more easily memorize those things, but, like, that conviction of mine made me be like, man, I, wanna, I want more scripture in my life. And a few years ago, after we had kids, I was, after we went from one kid to three kids, uh, I got really angry. And I, I came face to face with my own anger in a way that I never had before. I was out of control. I couldn't make these kids do what I wanted. I was really struggling. And I started going to counseling to help me process my anger. And in that, it was a Christian counselor. And I was talking about how I had like, memorized James 1.20 that talks about how the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And I would just like recite that to myself over and over again. And that counselor graciously was like, hey, like, that's good and that's true and you should memorize that. But in those moments, you feel out of control, you feel lost. Like, is there something else you can memorize to help you calm down in that moment before you address your children who you're so angry at? And so for the first time in my life, I memorized Psalm 23. And Psalm 23 is short enough that you can memorize it in a relatively short period of time, but it's long enough that if you recite it to yourself while you're, like, fixing to rage out on a toddler, uh, it helps you breathe enough it reminds you that, that God is your good shepherd who leads you through hard times, that he is with you in that valley of parenting and made it easier for me to, to respond to my kids with grace. God's word is, is good for us. It does work in us. And just like prayer is better with friends, obedience is better with friends too. When we get into God's word, it is easier to follow Jesus with others than without them. Every year we take students to Snowbird for a week and honestly, I wish we could take the whole church to Snowbird for a week or just anywhere. Like, there's something about gathering in one spot with hundreds of people who are all there for the same reason that is just good for our souls. Because we spend a whole week only like focusing on Jesus. Well, not only because we, we're, we're 
I'm, we talk about dumb things too, but we spend a lot of time talking about Jesus. We're mostly focused on Jesus. We're more focused on God and his word in that one week than we are in any average day. Because we're, we're, there's multiple worship sessions, there's teaching sessions, the word is open before us, we're having intentional conversations, we're forcing those conversations on one another. Like, that is, it is good, but it is, it's much easier. Students say it every year, they've said it every time I've ever taken them to any sort of camp. It's so much easier to focus on God when we're there than it is when we're here. And we can recreate that for one another if we intentionally follow him in community together. We encourage one another, not just on Sunday, not just on Wednesday, but throughout the week. And when we gather, we're going to ask ourselves hard questions like, am I making it easier or harder on other people to focus on the Lord in these gatherings in Sunday school? Do you share insight or conviction from the word that you have with other people? Man, let's help each other focus on him. And then the third thing Jude gives us is waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. There is nothing certain in life except death and taxes, right? Uh, those of you who own property recently, probably from the Cabarrus County, got your, your new uh, tax statement. Congratulations. Your property is now worth so much money that you can't own it anymore. <laughs> it was a brutal tax increase that we just faced. Uh, but imagine, like that, people say that the only thing sure in life or whatever, the only thing we can depend on is death and taxes. And that's generally true. Everybody's going to die and taxes are always going to go up. But imagine if we had the same kind of expectancy for Jesus' return as we do for death and taxes. And I'm not talking about the way we feel about it because we don't feel about death and taxes the way that we should feel about Jesus' return. But what if we had that same kind of certainty? The same certainty you have that the sun is going to come up tomorrow morning. You trust that the son of God will return and make all the wrong things right. And if we fail to remember this, our love for God will shrivel. Right now, uh, I mentioned Jenna's out of town with some friends. She's been gone since Thursday. Um, the kids have all survived. They've all brushed their teeth every day. They ate every day. We're here at church. Yeah, I'm a good dad. Yeah. Now, now I feel bad about having said all that. I was mostly joking. <laughs> single parents are all stars. If you are or were or have been single parent, man, you, you need, we, we need to give you gifts. I, I just, that is, yeah, single parenting is, is hard. Uh, so if you know one, then find ways to help them uh, and, and encourage them. But Jenna's been gone. Uh, I'm really glad that she's been able to get away and have this time with some friends, and, but I can't wait for her to get home. I miss my wife, not just because she makes it easier for me to eat healthy, but because my life is genuinely better with her in it. And I know she's coming back tomorrow afternoon. I know what time the plane's supposed to land, but if I didn't believe that she was coming back, if I doubted that she would make the flight, if I questioned whether she loved me enough to return, if I focused on her absence more than our reunion, then I would not feel love for her. I would feel something more like contempt or apathy. Jesus is coming back. And it's going to be glorious. There will be no more pain, no more sin, no more suffering, no more abuse, no more death. 
And those who trust him as their savior will be with him forever. And at his return, we expect his mercy to welcome us into eternal life. It's not our merit. We're talking about things that we need to do. We want to do these things. We want to pray. We want to be in God's word. We want to, be, we want to obey God's word. Like we, yes, we do need to do those things. But we don't do those things to earn salvation. We do not do those things to earn God's mercy. God's mercy is free and available to us through his son, Jesus, who spilled his blood, broke his body, poured out on the cross for us, and then rose from the dead to give us life in his name. That is a free gift. If you believe it, then you have received it. So we do these things because we know that God is good and loving and merciful, and we we know that when Jesus returns, that because of his mercy and we will, we will be with him forever. It's not, it's not the doing that gets us into that relationship. It's we do because of the relationship. Um, we want to let our hope in Jesus' return be more evident than our hope in political parties or elections, our hope in getting a raise or getting our kids into the right school or getting the right job or getting the right relationship. If we keep Jesus' return in front of ourselves, we'll have an increased desire to pray, an increased desire to be in the word, because we'll expect his return. And the result of that will be an ever-strengthening faith that then rubs off on other people. We fight false teaching by strengthening your faith while helping others do the same. So we want to we help those who stray. We want to strengthen our faith. We also want to help those who stray. I love to eat. One of my favorite things is sharing food with people. Sometimes during the week, Pastor Mike and I will be talking about any number of things, and the conversation will turn to food, and we just talk about food because food's so good. It's, it's, It's one of my favorite things. I love it. And I love sharing it with people. Like I love sharing good food that's good for you with people who I love. That, that's a slice of heaven right there. And because eating healthy can be hard, when you share healthy, delicious meals with people, it can be a blessing. But what if I invited you over to my house, Jenna cooks a, a, a delicious, healthy meal, and then I invited you over there just so that I could shame you about the McDonald's bag I saw on the floorboard of your car. Or the, if I berated you about the soda you were drinking. Or maybe I invite you over to my house and then I force feed you a kale salad. <laughs> like, too often that's what our discipleship looks like. We see our brothers and sisters struggling. And rather than inviting them into the joy of the Lord, we slap them. We shame them. Or, or we just ignore them and watch them drift away from the Lord, drift away from the faith. And that's not the way, it's not the way God has called us to live with one another. Jude says in verse 22 that we need to have mercy on those who waver, or who stray, or who doubt. And we get another triad here in the three ways believers are supposed to respond to those who are influenced by false teaching. We need to have mercy. We need to be merciful because we've received mercy. We don't shame people, we lovingly point them to the truth. God did not shame Adam and Eve in the garden when they believed the enemy's lies. He did point out their error, and he promised to fix the damage that they caused. And that's why Jesus came. 
When we, when we point out the, the error of sin, the error in our brother and sister's ways, we can say to them, God has done something about this twisted desire in your heart. Jesus fulfills that desire in a, in a different way than you see. We, we don't call out their, their sin to yell at them. We come alongside them and say, hey, brother, sister, I love you. Come back. Let's follow Jesus together. He is more worthy than this other thing you're you're pursuing or you're messing with. It should be easier for Christians to show mercy because they've received a great mercy. It should make us look different than the world around us because we live in a culture right now that shows no mercy. If you're on the wrong side, the, the perceived wrong side of an issue, you get dragged. Like we, People get dragged publicly in news cycles or on social media comments or, or whatever it is. And too often we see Christians piling on people who are wrong. We look more like the world, more like culture in those moments than we do look, look like Christ. That's not, what, not the way we've been called to live. Verse 23, the second way we're supposed to respond to those influenced by false teaching, Jude says, save others by snatching them from the fire. Snatching them from the fire is clearly a reference to hell, but it's not that we can save people out of hell once they're there. Hell is a place of eternal separation from God, a place of com- that's completely absent of his presence, of his goodness, of his love, and we don't want anyone to end up there. We can't get them out when they go. So when we see believers or anyone stumbling towards false teaching, we should act quickly to call them back to the truth. I think one of the reasons that we don't do this, we don't act swiftly, is because we take once saved, always saved, too far. And hopefully I'm going to make sense of that. The Bible teaches us that when you believe the gospel, you can't unbelieve it. God has you securely in his hand and nothing can take you away from him. Once you are saved, you are always saved. And the Bible also teaches that we will know believers by their fruit. We will know them by the way they live. So if somebody is, is believing and acting in a way that's other from the faith, other from the gospel, then it's generally safe to assume that they don't actually believe the gospel. Don't let the enemy take something good, like the assurance that we have in being saved once and being saved forever, and he will twist that into evil and use it to, to convince you that you don't really need to talk to your brother and sister about their sin and their missteps, because once saved, always saved. They're fine. The enemy will cause you to assume the salvation of the people around you. Don't assume the salvation. Talk to them about Jesus. Ask questions. Lovingly point out inconsistencies in their, in their living. And be honest about your own inconsistencies. Snatch them from the path that leads away from God forever. I've told my kids like a thousand times, if not more than that, that they can't go in the street in front of our house without permission. Uh, we live close to an auto parts store, and there's all these white cars flying through our neighborhood as those guys are delivering parts around Concord. Uh, and because our, our street is right behind Church Street, it's like an easy cut through or pass through for them. And they, like, they'll blow the stop sign in front of our house. They're, they fly up and down the street all the time. There's a lot of reasons for kids not to play in the street, but our street, I feel like, is especially dangerous because people ain't paying attention. So I tell the kids, don't go in the street. But what if I just assumed that they know that already? So I'm sitting on my front steps drinking coffee while my son wanders towards the street, and it looks like he's going to go into the street, but I'm like, ah, 
He knows not to go over there. So I just watch him as he walks into the street with an oncoming car. Like, would that be, would that be okay? Like, no, of course it wouldn't be okay. If, if, if I see him wandering into the street, I'm going to be, hey, buddy, don't go in the road. And then if he keeps walking, I'm not just going to sit there and be like, well, I tried. I'm going to get up. I, I'm going to yell. And then I'm going to run over there and I'm going to intervene as best I can to keep him, to snatch him away from danger. We, we need to treat one another that way. Not, not to be judgy, but because the consequences of sin are serious. And we want to draw people to the Father. There are lots of things we need to save people from, like putting their toilet paper on backwards. <laughs> I got that in all four of these sermons. <laughs> I feel bad about it a little bit because it doesn't really matter which way you put on your toilet paper. Um, but sometimes we need to breathe and laugh. Um, who do you know who is straying from Jesus? And how can you call them back? Verse 23 says, have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So again, Jude says, have mercy, but this time he's including a warning. He's saying, you need to be careful. There are some who've turned so against the gospel that there's little that you can do in your intervention. Their hearts are hardened and they're convinced that their way is right. And maybe you know someone like that. And in our efforts to appeal to them and guide them to Jesus, we may find ourselves slipping away from him as well. Sensuality is the big thing, the, the problem in the church for Jude that he's addressing. This seeking of physical pleasure without care for who it harms. If you spend a lot of time with somebody who sees nothing wrong with indulging their senses, indulging their flesh, then you may find yourself letting your guard down more and more. According to Pew Research in 2020, half of U.S. Christians, United States Christians, say that casual sex between consenting adults is sometimes or always acceptable. 50% of the polled Christians from Pew Research in 2020 said that casual sex between consenting adults is sometimes or always acceptable. Statistically, that means half the people in this room would believe that. That don't see God's word as authoritative on issues of sex in 2024. If you spend a lot of time with people who don't take the scriptures seriously, guess what will happen? You'll find yourself finding it harder and harder to take the scriptures seriously. You'll find it harder and harder to resist their arguments. Be careful. If you struggle with a similar sin as someone else, maybe you should pray for that person rather than engaging them one-on-one. -on -one. Not because you don't love them, but because you have a responsibility to guard your own heart. You've got to take care of yourself, not in a selfish way, but like, you know when you're on the plane and they do that thing when they show you how to use a seatbelt and then they're like, if the plane's going down and you, the oxygen mask falls from the ceiling, put your own mask on first before you help others. It's so that you like... You don't suffocate trying to help somebody else. you got to take care of yourself before you can worry about taking care of someone else. A drowning man can't save a drowning man. Make sure that you believe the gospel. But let's not sit in our seats with our arms folded while people around us suffocate in their sin and die apart from Jesus. In Sunday school, we were reminded of the importance of evangelism today. And one of the best ways to strengthen your faith is to share it. Share it with non-believers, share it with believers.
talk about Jesus and how much you love him and the new things you're learning about him with other people, and it will, it will strengthen you. Every one of our Sunday school teachers can tell you that they grow more, or, or if you've taught, lead a small group, or you teach on Wednesday night or whatever, you grow through your teaching and grow through your sharing. There's nothing in the world like seeing someone go from death to life through faith in Jesus to bolster your own faith. Let's not be content to sit here and remind ourselves of God's love for us, but let's take it into the world around us and share with everyone who will listen about God's great love for them. At school, at work, in your yard, at your table, in your car, fight the false teaching by strengthening your faith while helping others do the same. And, and as believers, as we consider these ways to contend for the faith and the things we need to do, we may find ourselves in one or two places. We might despair because we stink at reading the Bible, we stink at praying, and we we stink at keeping our eyes on Jesus and we feel hopeless or discouraged. Or maybe we become arrogant because we're more dis- we feel more disciplined than the people around us. I read my Bible every day. I pray all the time. I want Jesus to come back yesterday. That's how much I hope for that. And whichever one of those applies to you, whether you despair at your disobedience or you're be- you find yourself becoming prideful about it, the remedy is the same. So we need to remember that God is one who saves now and forever. Let's read verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Jude references the snatching from the fire earlier in the passage and, and garments stained by sin. And he's referencing something that happens in Zechariah chapter 3. I'm going to read it to you. It's about the high priest at the time whose name was Joshua. It says, then he showed me, God showed me, the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan at his right hand, his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has, con- who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? That's how God describes the high priest. He's a burning snick, stick who is snatched from the fire. And it continues, now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes. As he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him. Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to him. See I have removed your iniquity from you. And I will clothe you with festive robes. And then I said. Let them put a clean turban on his head. So a clean turban was placed on his head. And they clothed him in garments. While the angel of the Lord was standing nearby. It is the Lord who saves It's the Lord who makes us clean. It's the Lord who snatches us out of judgment and into his grace. It's the Lord who calls us, the Lord who loves us, the Lord who keeps us. In Philippians 1.6, Paul tells us, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's the one who protects us from sin. He will make us stand in his presence without fear because we've been shown mercy and he loves us. You aren't alone in your struggle to stay in God's love. You aren't alone in your battle to obey his word. You aren't alone in your fight to pray and to hope. He has you in his hands if you are a believer. And we are in this fight together. So let's spur one another on. And friend, if you're here and you don't believe, we urge you to believe the gospel of Jesus today. He sets us free from our selfishness and our shame. He delivers us through death, to the loving arms of the Father, where we'll spend eternity loving God and loving people as we were created to. Fight false teaching by strengthening your faith while helping others do the same. We're going to take some time to reflect 
You can sing, you can pray, whatever you need. Um, but as you do, I want you to ask a few questions of yourself. Uh, what can you do differently this week to spend time with God? Where do you need to obey him? How can you hope more in his return? And who can you share the gospel with? I'm going to pray. Father God, we love you. God, we praise you for who you are. We thank you for being the one who snatches us out of danger and brings us into your marvelous light. God, we ask that you help us to hope in the return of Jesus. We ask that you help us to, to increase the amount of time that we pray and spend with you. Help us to see prayer as a privilege and not a burden. Help us to see your word as good for our hearts and our souls and our daily lives. Help us to run after you and strengthen our faith so that we can fight false teaching and we can help others do the same. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. For additional sermon resources and to find out who we are, visit us online at westconcordchurch.com. Thanks for listening.